0: Man, I want to thank you guys so much for how you sing to the Lord. Uh, It really, really does bless my heart and my soul to be able to sing together the praises to our Lord. It's just amazing. Uh, Si estás aquí esta mañana y hablas español, te quiero decir una cosa. Quiero que pongas en tu calendario el 24 de octubre. El 24 de octubre vamos, vamos a tener nuestro primer servicio completamente en español. Uh, estoy bien emocionado como el pastor aquí poder tener dos servicios, uno en inglés y uno en español. Uh, one thing that I just said was for all of my people who are just waiting for a 12:30 service. We're about to have one October 24th. And so October 24th will be our 12:30 service to where that day we'll have a service in English and a service in Spanish and so we'll be praying for me, I'll be preaching at both. So it'll be super fun. Uh, So I'm just so excited for that. Yeah, we can clap. We can celebrate. That's awesome. So that's part of the celebration process. And there's another thing I want to celebrate. And I didn't tell this guy's parents, but I'm going to do it anyway. So if I could have Nate. Nate, will you come up here real quick? It's incredible. This is Nate. What's up? Uh, So this little guy. I'm going to stay on the platform because I think if I get down here, you can stand with me. Come on. So this is Nate. And I want to make sure you guys know this about Nate. So Nate, uh, the beginning of this year, kind of the end of last year, right, but the beginning of this year, Nate was having these conversations with myself and with Amber and with his parents and he was like, guys, I think I'm ready to be baptized. And I was like, well, dude, let's talk about it. So if you were not there at the baptism celebration, I actually had the privilege of baptizing Nate at that and that was just incredible. So I just want to celebrate that this morning. (laughs) Amen. You can sit down, my man. Sit down. Thank you. I'm so grateful uh, for Sarah. Sarah Bonham is in here, and I'm so grateful for her. She is the kids' minister on this campus, and I just love how she has been partnering with parents to be the disciples in children's lives. And I'm also grateful for Kim and for Aaron, who are doing the same thing, but with other uh, age levels. And so there's just so much to celebrate. And what god is doing in our church and and through our church and absolutely beyond our church and next week we'll celebrate some more people that have been baptized just here but i want to make sure that our church knows like there's another person here like another about to be adult right nate that is going to be growing up in our church and in the gospel and then when i look at nate it reminds me that if you haven't started school yet you're probably about to Like if your kids haven't started school yet, they're probably about to. And there's so much anxiety probably going on, so many questions, uh, so many things that maybe you're worried about. And so I just want to pray for us uh, this morning. I want to pray for you uh, because I know all the things that come with that. I actually just dropped my little brother Caleb off to his first year of college. He's, he's going to be a little freshman. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you're just so tiny, but not, but not at the same time. You're so big. And so I'm looking at my parents and they're just like bawling their eyes out. And I'm like, yeah, we need to pray. <laughs> we need to pray. And so if it's okay, I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to pray with us and for us. Lord, right now, we, we just want to soak in your presence. Lord, we want to proclaim that you are God, that you are almighty. And Lord, whether someone in here is either going to school or they have people in their life that are going to school or going to a different job or maybe just going through a crazy situation. Lord, I pray that anxiety would fall like rain, just fall off. Lord, I pray that maybe the depression that is felt or that they have that would just fall off like a backpack. Lord, I pray that this would be a moment in their life that they would learn just how incredible you are and how you are so trustworthy. Lord, that they would recognize that this is a moment to lean into your sovereignty, to lean into how you're in control. Lord, I do pray for all of our kids and students and and college students, Lord, that you would give them wisdom in all that they do, that you would help them prepare well. And Lord, I do pray for the parents, God, that their prayer life, that their prayer life would just be so powerful, that their prayer life would be fruitful that their prayer life would become stronger as they pray and pray for their kids. Lord, thank you for everything that is so worth celebrating. God, I I, I think of how when school comes, so much more programming comes in our church. And so, God, I do pray for this upcoming Wednesday that we will be teaching a second language to people. Lord, I do pray for our preschool and our kids and our youth programming that will happen. Lord, I pray on how we will be serving our community. I I pray for this Friday and how we're going to have another Noche de Vida, this worship night. That's all in Spanish. Lord, you are almighty and you are all good and we will trust you in every situation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, I know I needed that. Did you guys need that too? Yeah, yeah, you're with me, you're with me. Uh, So like you saw in that video, we're going to start a new series. And in this new series, it's going to be called Re-Envision. And we're going to be looking at the book of Ezra together. Uh, And as we look at the book of Ezra, we're going to see a couple of things happening. But there's this big picture I want you to see in the book of Ezra. The book of of Ezra is this entire picture of the rebuilding of the temple the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And we're gonna see how this moment of rebuilding the temple is gonna reshape Israel. And they're going to, it's gonna reshape them in such a way that they're gonna to have to re-envision what it's like to worship the Lord coming back home because they've been exiled. So they're gonna come back home. They have to re-envision what it's like to worship here in their place because they've been exiled for 70 years. In a way, what I want us to get in this series and re-envision is that maybe what the Lord is going to teach us is that we have to re-envision the mission. Re-envision the mission. Maybe it's re-envision the mission of our life, re-envision the mission of worship, re-envision the mission of our church. Because God does put these moments in our life that we have to rethink or re-envision what all of this looks like and say, okay, Lord, redirect me. Man, give me just a sense of refreshment of which way I need to go. And so we are going to be in the book of Ezra, and Ezra might be a little hard to get to, so be uh, free to look at the table of contents and say, okay, I need to find Ezra. But I want you to go ahead and try to find it uh, with me. And we're going to start reading in verse 1, but before we get there, I'm going to give you a lot of context and a lot of background if that's okay i'm going to give you a little bit more than we usually do here so it's going to sound a little bit like teaching but that's okay take some notes it's a great time so here's the context i want you to have in the as we read and as we think because if you don't get the background and the context you're going to miss out on a whole lot of things so here's here's number one this whole background and context is that the people of israel were in jerusalem and they were having a great time, you know, they were worshiping the Lord. But in typical human fashion, in typical Israel fashion, they, they, they disobeyed the Lord. They didn't trust the Lord. They separated themselves from the Lord. And so what happened is in these moments where, where the people of Israel are just not even looking at the Lord anymore, the Lord completely, completely... Uh, uh, does something in their life to completely reshape them. And so what he does is he kind of gives them a consequence, and usually that consequence is another people group coming and overthrowing their kingdom. Okay, so now you have, you know, Israel doing their thing, and they're not even paying attention to the Lord, and so, this, so the Lord sends a consequence, and now they're being overthrown by a kingdom, and this kingdom was a kingdom of Egypt. But that didn't last very long, because Egypt came, and then right after Egypt, this kingdom of Babylon came. So now you have this kingdom of Babylon that has overthrown not just Israel but also Egypt that was there. So now you have Babylon coming in and now they're in Jerusalem. You with me? So they're in Jerusalem and they're, they're hanging out. They're doing the thing. And what happens is that there's this king and his name is King Nebuchadnezzar. So the king Nebuchadnezzar, he overthrows Jerusalem and these other surrounding parts of where Israel is at. But what he does is he actually sets rulers in Jerusalem, he's like, "All right, you're gonna rule here." Well, there's several different rulers that were coming in and out, coming in and out, and every single one of them—if if, actually—if you look at Second Chronicles, you see that all of them just disobeyed the Lord, and all of them were not doing the right thing in the eyes of the Lord. But there is this one ruler, this one ruler who disobeyed the Lord so much, and this one ruler who disobeyed King Nebuchadnezzar so much that King Nebuchadnezzar was like, "You know what?" I'm going to kick all of you out. Like all of you don't even deserve to be here. So what he does is he comes in and he shows that ruler what's up. He's like, yeah, you're not ruling anymore. Kicks him out. But then he gets all of Israel, the people of Israel is like, yeah, you're out to you, And takes them with him with them. And so King Nebuchadnezzar takes their treasures, takes their possessions, takes everything that they have and brings it to them uh, to this area where Babylon was at. You could say that King Nebuchadnezzar is like, okay, it's enough, let's go. So then in this moment where King Nebuchadnezzar has done that and now Israel's like over here rather than in Jerusalem, it's been like 70 years. So can you imagine someone taking you out of your home for 70 years? It's like saying, okay, all of you, I know you live in the Tulsa area, but we're going to Canada for 70 years. So they took them out, and after those 70 years... Even though the king of Babylon, even though Babylon was this ginormous, gigantic kingdom was so strong, they were actually overthrown by the Persians. And this is really where we end up in Ezra chapter one, where the Persians have now taken over and, and, and have now uh, are in this, in this place with uh, where the Babylon were at, but then they also took over all of Jerusalem and all of this area. So now you think the Jews the people of Israel, are now being, in a sense, conquered and overthrown and ruled by the Persian kingdom. So that's a lot of context, a lot of background, but you need to know Israel has not been in their place for 70 years, and now they're being ruled by the king of Persia. And so as we open up in Ezra chapter one, verse one, here's a textual idea that we're gonna see, is that through God's providence and kindness, Israel is released from exiled and welcomed back home, which is so cool. And then here's our sermon idea that I want you guys to write down. So here's the big idea. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. And this whole story of Ezra, it's a very historical story. And throughout this whole story, we're going to see that God keeps his promises time and time again. And what we're going to do, we're going to actually read chunk by chunk because we're going to be looking at chapter 1 and chapter 2. So we're not going to read and stand up and read all both chapters, but we're just going to read chunk by chunk uh, together. So the first thing that I want us to see together in in verses 1 to 4, verses 1 to 4 is this. This is our first point of explanation. The first thing that we see is a historical proclamation, a historical proclamation So I'm going to start reading in verse 1 and read all the way to verse 4. It says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, remember they're ruled by the Persians, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has pointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold. And the goods and livestock with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. You see, the reason that I say that this is a historical proclamation is not because it just says proclamation in the passage. But because it goes all the way back to what uh, all the way back to what Jeremiah had said. So Jeremiah had actually prophesied this moment because Jeremiah was this prophet, this prophet of the Lord that that spoke for the Lord. It was this prophet that God had appointed for the people of Israel in order to lead them and to guide them and to show them where to go. And so Jeremiah says two things, and so I want to read these two things to you. So Jeremiah chapter twenty-five. Verse 11, he has this first historical proclamation. He says this, this whole country, talking about Israel, this whole country will become a desolate wasteland and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Interesting, right? So Jeremiah says, hey, they're gonna serve the king of Babylon 70 years and then what happens? They serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. They were exiled. Then Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10 says this, This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. You see, the Lord promises, hey, this is gonna become a desolate wasteland. But then the next thing that he promises is, no, I'm going to bring you back. And what's so interesting is that he uses one of the most unlikely characters of all of history, in my opinion. It's this random king of Persia who, in his first year, was moved by God. You see, when, whenever you go pastor a place, they say, hey, don't change anything in the first year. Just love people. Well, the king of Persia is like, yeah, I'm not going to love anybody. I'm just going to do it because God is just moving me. God is moving me to change these things. God is moving me to go. So he uses this foreign king to declare something, and not just in verbiage, but in writing. And so he writes down all these things. And I just want you to just focus in on verse 2. It says, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. And he acknowledges the Lord as the Lord, the God of heaven, who has given me the kingdoms of earth and has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judea. He had this very specific calling, this very specific word from the Lord. And then he gives this invitation in verse three to anybody. He says, any of his people, any of God's people among you may go up to Jerusalem and Judah and build the temple of the Lord. You see right there, build the temple of the Lord is this whole thing that we're talking about in Ezra that it's all about the rebuilding of the temple that had been destroyed. And then in verse four and in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. You see this invitation is for anybody who wants to go, but what we're going to see in a minute is that only some went. And then I find it fascinating that God is providing a way for Israel, for the people of God, but then he's also using others. He's using King Cyrus to provide, and then he's going to use other people to provide for them, to rebuild this temple. And, and the rebuilding of this temple, again, will provide a moment for the people of Israel to re-envision what it's like to worship the Lord back home. So God is providing all of these things for Israel. And and I'm excited to look at the rest of it because what he provides is something that is more than I think anybody could have asked. And so right here, just in this little moment, we're able to see and and just witness the Lord absolutely keep his promise. He says, this is what's going to happen. Desolation and then I'm going to come and rescue you. And God keeps his promise. And he didn't keep his promise because Israel, like, got better. He didn't keep his promise because Israel, like, repented. He didn't keep his promise because of something that Israel did. He kept his promise because he proclaimed it. He said, I proclaimed this. I'm going to keep my promise, and I'm going to come to you. And I just want us to remember the promises of God because we can think of all these incredible promises of God I mean, we could, list, we could sit here and list off for hours and hours of promises of God. But I think there's one promise that we would miss. I think all of us would miss this promise. And this promise comes from John chapter 16, verse 33. And it says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And here's the promise. In this world you will have trouble. Doesn't that sound like the first promise that God made to Israel? Hey, your place, your home will be a desolate wasteland. Good for nothing. But I'm really glad because it it keeps on going. It says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. He says, have peace, take heart. Yes, man, there's so much that's going on. Yes, there's so much sin. Yes, there's so much trouble in the world. Yes, you're going to face all these incredible hardships. Yes, you might find yourself in a desolate wasteland. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And this is the promise that we see in Scripture. This is a promise that we see in the life of Israel. But I think we see it in our life as well. We can take heart and have peace and saying, okay, Lord, I'm gonna keep walking. And I'm gonna keep walking because of this. Here's our application point for us this morning. God calls out the called. God calls out the called. You see, we can look at this passage and just say, okay, Misael, I'm getting the history. I'm getting everything you're saying, but what in the world does this mean for my life right now? <laughs> like sometimes we ask, who cares? But God cares, and we should care, because God calls out the called, and that's what we see as an application here. Because think of who is the called. And so when you think of all those who were in exile with Babylon, when you think of all those who were in Jerusalem, those are people who are called the children of God. So the called are those who are called children of God. In our context, you could say that all those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus as the Lord and Savior of their life, are the ones who are called. Called to his purpose, called to his will. The ones who are called children of God. And so I want you to notice just once again that the Lord even uses the most unlikely person to call out the called. And so what does it mean for for God to call out someone? What does it mean for someone to say, man, I'm calling on you? There are other people maybe in the church realm or maybe people around you that say, well, that's called a calling. That God has a calling on your life. God has a calling and is trying to, to direct you in this, in this general sense of, of where to go. And here's how, I can, here's how I usually define calling to somebody. A calling is kind of like God saying, hey, I need you, let's go. So when you think about a calling, think of it that way, where God is looking at you and saying, I need you, now let's go. Let's do this thing. Because that's exactly what God is doing right here. And and the question for us this morning is, what is God calling you to do? What is God calling us to do? You know, maybe this past week or this past month, you've been wrestling of saying, Lord, where are you calling me? Where are you telling me where you're looking at me and you're saying, I need you, let's go. Where are you guiding me in this direction? Where are you guiding me in this general way And maybe, Lord, as you're calling me to walk in this certain direction, are you asking me to re-envision what it's like to worship, Lord? As I'm walking in this in this calling, are you asking me to re-envision what it's like to lead, what it's like to lead in my home, what it's like to maybe be in the church or be a part of the church, Lord? Are you asking me to re-envision what it's like to give or to go or, or to move or to make disciples? Because it's that humble heart of saying, Lord, where do you need me? That the Lord is calling and saying, man, I need you. Let's go. Let's do it. And what I love about the Lord, I mean, you can see it all through here, is that God doesn't call us to a place that he's not already at. And God doesn't call us to, to do something in which he's not already moving. That's what he's already doing. He's like, hey, come join me. That's why he says, I need you. Oh, well, let's go. <laughs> let's go. I'm calling you to do this. And and maybe you might be asking me, said, well, how does God call? Like, I just don't get it. Like, I, I need your help understanding that. Uh, well, I wanted to just share a little bit of my story. Uh, I know I've shared a lot of stories about my life, a lot of stories about my family. Uh, but one story I don't think I've shared yet is how the Lord called me into the ministry, and. And this story, it's really funny because at that moment, I didn't know what to call it. Like, you have to understand, I grew up in a very, very, very small church, and we only spoke Spanish, so we never used the word called or calling into ministry. And so I remember being 16 years old, and I was in this worship service, uh, and I was just worshiping the Lord, and I was like, Lord, man, you're incredible. This is amazing. And in this moment, I was fighting and wrestling even with myself because at this point, I was 16. And I was thinking, okay, what am I going to do with my life? What am I going to do in the future? And so I was thinking, okay, maybe I can be uh, an architect. Maybe I can be someone who's a physical therapist. Maybe I can, like, write code. I don't know. I, I, can, I just want to do all these things. So in my mind, I'm worshiping, and then these thoughts are coming in. I'm just wrestling. And then all of a sudden, I, can't, I, I don't know how else to describe it to you. But all of a sudden, I, I have these thoughts where God is telling me, no, Misael, you have to use all of who you are and all of what you have for my glory and then i just i felt as if the lord had just like grabbed my shirt and it was just like pulling me and just pulling me and saying i need you <laughs> let's go and i was like but but lord i don't know what that means like what does it mean to use all of what i have and all of who i am for your glory he's like look i'm not asking you to understand he goes, i'm asking you to obey i'm asking you to walk with me and let and let's go He's like, you are called my child, and I'm calling you out right now, so let's do this. And so that for me was my experience of how the Lord called me into ministry, and at that moment, I didn't know what to call it. It wasn't until later that I had different mentors that said, Misael, this is exactly what happened. The Lord is calling you to ministry, and I said, wow, like, can I go to school for that? And they're like, yeah, you can go to this place called Oakland Baptist University. And I was like, stop. Like, people actually go to college to, like, study the Bible and theology and philosophy. And they're like, yeah, yeah, you really can. I said, wow, that's really cool. And so this Lord's calling was this calling of obedience of saying, Lord, I don't know everything that it takes. But I know that you're saying, let's go. And so I'm going to go. And that's what we see with, with Israel, that when the Lord made this proclamation, this historic proclamation, he also provided because God provides for what he promises. And that's our next point. So in verses 5 to 11, we see this. A historic provision. So not just a historic proclamation, but we also see a historic provision. So starting in verse 5, I'm going to read. And as we go, uh, be gracious with me. There's some names in here that are really interesting. Uh, so if you want to, if you want to uh, help me do that, that would be great. Uh, so verse 5, it says this. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted with them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with the valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Shespazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. And then right here you have a list where gold dishes, there was 30. Silver dishes, there was 1,000. Silver pans, there was 29. Gold bowls, there was 30, matching silver bowls, got to be matching, 410, and other articles, which were 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shasbazar brought all things along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. So in this whole thing, you see that God is just absolutely providing that he keeps his promises. And not only does he keep his promises with his proclamation, but he keeps his promises through how he provides. He's like, man, I'm going to provide for you all these things. And, he not, and God not only moved in the hearts of, uh, the heart of the king, the king of Persia, the king of Cyrus, but he moved in the hearts of people. It says right here that people were moved by God to go build the temple for God. And it's just incredible to see how the Lord moved in them not just to go, but there were other people who were moved to stay and to give. And so there were some who said, man, the Lord is telling me I need to go build. And some were saying, okay, well, the Lord is telling me I need to give. You have to remember they've been in this this place for 70 years. So I'm assuming some were just like, well, this is my home. Like that's not really my home. So I'm just going to give all this to you. And so they were giving in verse 6, it says all their neighbors assisted them. All of them with silver, with gold, with livestock, and goods, and gifts. And then, and then I want to highlight this. In verse 6, at the very end, it says, in addition to all the free will offerings. You see, you might read that, but it's a beautiful detail that the free will offering was actually just a typical offering that everyone would give. That was like, you could say the bare minimum. The free will offering, boom, that's my bare minimum. You could say, uh, in our context, like uh, my 10%. But what they did say, they gave in addition to that. And when we, when we read this, I think it should challenges, challenge us. I think it challenges me too. Because I was thinking, man, all, all these people gave in addition to what they were already giving. It was like a sacrificial giving. And then what I find interesting is that in verse 7, you have to understand that verses 7 to 11 is Israel getting everything back that was once stolen from them. Everything back that was once taken from them. Remember Babylon took everything from Israel, all their treasures, all their possessions, everything that they had. Well, Babylon still had it. And so the king of Persia said, well, here you go. Here's all your things back. Now go use it. Go use it to build the temple. Here's your possessions that you need. And so again, this all challenges me, especially that part that the Lord provides through his people that the Lord provides when, when people give in addition to. And this is, this is a good challenge for me because I need to be the first to do that. Say, Lord, okay, you've given me strength. man. I need to give in addition to strength, Lord. I need, I need to give all that I have. And then I think about our church. And so some things that are actually gonna be coming out in the next couple of weeks that I'm really excited for are these next steps for our whole church. These next steps where we're gonna be sharing with you the vision that God has given us for 2022, We're going to be sharing with you all the cool things that we're planning on doing. And then we're going to share with you some of the remodeling that we have in mind for this place. But as we think about all this remodeling that's going to happen, as we think about all the things that are going to have to be built or rebuilt, we're going to have to have a mindset like Israel did. And Israel understood that building the temple of the Lord was going to take, yes, what they were already giving, but also in addition to and so in these moments that maybe we stand up here as pastors and we say, guys, let's, let's hold hands together and let's give in addition to what we're already giving in order to maybe remodel or update or do these things to, to make these places and where we worship and glorify the Lord. Uh, maybe you look a little bit more modern or look a little bit more of this so this, be a little bit more safe for our kids. Hey, let's do that together. And so I don't want you to be surprised when, when this happens because what we see is that the people of Israel understood this. And, and I hope that, that we can understand this together because I will be the first one to lead out in that. I will be the first one to lead out and say, okay, let's give in addition to what the Lord has already given to us. And so that's what we see in, in, in the first two parts. We see that a uh, historical proclamation. We see a historical provision because God does provide and the last thing I want us to see, which is actually being in chapter 2, will be a historical parade. A historical parade. So we're going to read verses 1 to 2. It says this. And these this is were all the incredible names. Now these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and to Judah, each to their own town, in company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Suriah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigva, Rehum, and Ba'ana. That's how I pronounce it. And the list of men of the people of Israel. Now, I'm not going to read that whole list, okay? But I do want you to look at your Bible and look at this entire list. And uh, sometimes when we look at lists in the Bible, I think we skip them. Anybody want to confess? We skip the list of names. Okay, don't be shy. We skip, I skip them sometimes. But we have to look at them and say, okay, what do these lists indicate to us? But what we see in, in all of these lists is we see leaders and families. We see villagers. We see priests. We see worshipers. We see Levites and and those who worked and served in the temple. We see temple servants. And what's really interesting is kind of like at the end around like the 60s, like the verse 60s, we see people that didn't, uh, they weren't able to point to their descendants and they weren't able to point to their lineage. And so they were declared unclean. Like, they're like, yeah, you can't tell me who your mom or grandfather or great-great-grandfather is. So you actually can't work in the temple anymore. Uh, so you're considered unclean and you can't work here. Uh, see you later. And so for me, I just think that's absolutely hilarious. Cause it's like, man, I'm glad I don't, have to, <laughs> I don't have to do that. But I think someone someone lost the paperwork. And so when we look at all these, we see people who, from all kinds. And then I want to point your attention to verse 68. Verse 68 is what I call the receipt. Here are the receipts. So show me the receipts. Here it is. So when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the family gave freewill offering toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of this work. So this is all in total. 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, And 100 priestly garments. So I don't really know how much money this is today, but 61,000 of anything is a lot, okay? 61,000 of anything is a lot, and 5,000 of anything is a lot, and priestly garments, 100, sounds excessive, right? That's a lot of priestly garments. But they gave all these things, they gave so much in order for this to work. So these are receipts, and then in verse 70, you see the people who settled in the town. So in verse 70, it says, the priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with the other people and the rest of Israelites settled in their own town. That's a lot of history to take in, but here's what's incredible about even just that ending part. What's incredible is that because it's a historic parade, it's almost like a second exodus. So think of the first exodus that happened. The first exodus we see in, in, the, book of, in the book of Exodus where these, where these people of, of Israel, these people of God, they were in Egypt. And they were enslaved. They were, you could say that they were people who couldn't escape. But then God freed them. God freed them after all of these years, and he took them, and he took them out and into the desert. And there is this beautiful parade of people that came out of Egypt. In the same way, you have these people in this area where Babylon had placed them, and now you have all of these people parading out and just celebrating and cannot wait to get back home. And so what does this mean for us? When we look at all this, when we see what God had had done in their life, and now they're parading out, what does this mean? Well, you could say that these people were captives, right? So here's the application for us from all of this, is that not only does God call out the the called, but God calls out the captive. Think about that. God calls out the captive. Maybe you can think in your life at some point where you feel like you had just been enslaved or captive to sin, where sin was just entangling you, you were chained up in sin. You see, all of us have been there. All of us have been there, I've been there myself. You see, part of my story is, is when I was about seven years old, I remember also being in, in this worship service and I've always been a really deep thinker and just thinking about life and thinking about what happens after I die, what happens if I never existed, all of these interesting questions about life. But I remember at seven years old, I, I was listening and I was, and I was just hearing the reality and the truth about how Jesus is the only way. And that without Jesus, we are captives to our sin. We are enslaved to our sin and we are chained to our sin. And it is Jesus and Jesus alone that sets us free. He is the only one with the power to break the chain. He's the only one with the power to say, yeah, let's go. He's the only one with the power and the way and to say, man, I've given you a gift. If you just accept it, you can walk in freedom. But as human beings, it almost seems like we like to hold on to the chain, right? So we've maybe, maybe the Lord has saved us from, from this captivity of, of eternal death, eternal separation from him. But sometimes because we come from the kingdom of darkness, Sometimes we're walking in the kingdom of light, and we like to look back at the kingdom of darkness. We like to look back and maybe kind of inch our way and like grab the chain and say, No, I kind of like my chain. I kind of like that sin I'm holding on to. But you see, even at seven, I realized something. I realized that I can't, and God can't. And that simple statement when I was seven has still resonated with me today. Because I just want you to think of all the situations maybe you've been in. And you just need that little reminder that you can't, but God can. When it comes to salvation, you can't, God can. When it comes to that situation in your life that you've thought of in this moment, you can't, but God can. Maybe you're thinking of that impossible task and and maybe thinking, Lord, if you don't come through, this will not happen. That's exactly right, because we can't, and God can. You see, God promised, and he made a a proclamation that Jesus was coming. And because he proclaimed it, because he promised it, it happened. And it happened, and he provided for it and he provided Jesus and, and man, Jesus is amazing for salvation, but Jesus is amazing also to sustain you. And so I don't know who needs to hear this this morning, but you don't have to be a captive anymore. You don't have to hold on to the chain anymore. And you can walk in freedom with the Lord. He's provided a way and, and we as a people, can have our own historical parade, where we are walking out saying, no, Lord, I trust you, I'm walking in this. Because at the end of times, when Jesus comes back, it'll be a historical parade, going into the presence of the almighty God saying, Lord, I knew it, and I trusted in you, man. This is amazing. And so let's be a people who understands that God keeps his promises, that he calls out the called, that he calls out the captive. And in these moments that he's doing that, he might be asking us to re-envision different parts of our life. So let's pray together. Lord, you are the God of, of promises. And Lord, you keep those promises. I'm just so thankful for that Lord thank you for how I've seen your promises follow through even in this place Lord thank you for the prayer warriors in this room that pray for your people that pray for revival oh, that pray that chains would be broken, that captives would be released Lord that people would be called out in your name to say I need you, let's go Lord, thank you that we can learn even through a very historical book like Ezra. Lord, I pray that as we continue in this series, God, that you would help us see the importance of understanding what your people went through because what your people went through can resonate with what we are going through right now in this moment. People who need to be released to have an exodus. Lord, thank you so much for everything that we can celebrate because ultimately, Lord, it all comes from you because you are great and you are mighty. And Lord, we will not stop celebrating you until the day we die. We will not stop celebrating you, Lord, ever because you are worthy of it all. In Jesus' name I pray.